Hello, and welcome to Accountability Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. All right, well, today we have a very timely, exciting podcast. Uh, uh, we have a great guest, uh, Mr. Bob Westbrooks, and he just recently published a new book. It is called Left Holding the Bag, a watchdog's account of how Washington fumbled its COVID test. Available now. Um, so why don't we just start off saying hello to Bob. Hey, Bob, how are you doing today? I'm good, Paul. How are you? It's been a been a couple of years, I think, uh, since I was last on, but uh, great to be with you. Absolutely. Yeah, you've been busy, so <laughs> hard to get a hold of you, you know? <laughs> few uh, pandemics and things like that going on so exactly uh, yeah let's just start off again maybe you just uh, introduce yourself again to our audience kind of uh you know who you are what you did and that's all going to kind of feed into why you wrote the book as well but let's just you know reintroduce yourself if you don't mind yeah absolutely so uh bob westbrooks i'm uh, a former federal inspector general uh and i uh, served as the uh uh, executive director of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. Um, I was appointed to that um, when the pandemic hit uh, in uh, 2020, and I served in that role for about two and a half years until the pandemic emergency was winding down. And I retired in December of 2022 from federal service. And uh, since that time, I've been uh, been been writing this book, left left holding the bag to um, really preserve the national pandemic story and to, to document some, uh, I think some lessons learned. Yeah. And I, uh, I've been reading through the book here and I'm not going to lie. I get a little PTSD. <laughs> um, yeah, but, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, you really did a great job of just capturing all the different steps along the way from the beginning to the middle, to the end, to, you know, to where we are now. And I love how you, you know, you put a lot of your personal story in there too. It wasn't just about, you know, your job, but it was your personal life. It was, it's just a document of, you know, what was happening in the country. I mean, it's a great book, but I mean, we're going to let you kind of give us some, some highlights here, but I just wanted to say that. Um, so why don't we just kind of start from the fundamentals? Um, I mean, you, we kind of tell from the, from the title, what the book is about, you know, all this money that kind of went out during the, the pandemic times. Um, but, you know, why did you personally feel like uh, you wanted to write this? You know, it was an epical moment in history, right? Uh, and, and we all lived it. And that's why I put a lot of the, the or some of the personal stuff um, in the book. It's really hard to separate out. Um, the book is, it's the story of the federal IGs. It's my story, but it's also your story and all of our listeners' story, right? We were all living through it. And, it, if, and I tried to document in ways large and small how just how much the pandemic affected our our home and and work lives um so you know i i wrote the book about um about the um the challenge that we faced as a country and you know the subtitle for the book is how uh, washington fumbled its its COVID test and i i think that uh it did a collect washington collectively and i think um the american people were let down i think we quite frankly deserve better and deserve more out of uh, out of our, our our government and so i document throughout the book sort of the history of how the pandemic evolved um and how washington responded and didn't respond um and um what the and one of the things i think a lot of people don't remember is the competing crises that we had and we were facing during the same time as a pandemic that was stealing oxygen in Washington are competing for oxygen. And so I try to document uh, and lay all that out. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I want to kind of walk through a little bit of the book. I mean, it's in three parts. I mean, as you mentioned it, it really does a great job of interweaving all the things that were happening at the time. And as you said, it was like how many crises were happening all at the same time. So, I, yeah. you know, I don't know how you want to do it, but if you want to kind of maybe walk us through just kind of how the book's laid out, what, what we will learn in there, um, you know, i just kind of leave it to you. Maybe just intersperse with some questions as you go. Yeah, no, that sounds great. So uh, the book is in three parts. Um, and, you know, the first part is, um, you know, pre-pandemic until the, the pandemic hit. So we're talking the the January, February, March timeframe. And during that time, and I tried to, with the chapter titles and chapter summaries, lay out um, what was going on in a country and the, and the collective mindset, I think. So the collective mindset in January when we, when our nation, our political leaders first learned about this, uh, this uh, coronavirus uh, out of China, um, the, the the first response from Washington was was relax, we've got this under control. That was the message from Washington, and in a very short period of time, it went from relax, everything's under control, to don't panic, but we're going to need to shut down the country. That happened in a matter of weeks, and so I outline in the first part of the book how that evolved, how um, the the uh, the CARES Act itself, which was this massive uh, uh, relief package, one of the largest in U.S. histories, uh, almost two trillion dollars, the context for uh, under which that was uh, passed in law to provide relief to Americans, um, and then. The, the second part of the book is uh, with the CARES Act was um, was also was the the creation the CARES Act called for the creation of the a couple of accountability accountability mechanisms uh, including um, an, an independent oversight committee consisting of IGs called the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee or the PRAC and um, the PRAC the IGs were given 30 days to get Number one, a website up with pandemic spending, which is an enormous task in normal times, let alone when you're facing a global pandemic with supply chain shortages and stay-at-home orders in 43 states. Um, but they had 30 days to get a website up, and they had 30 days to hire, to find and hire and onboard an executive director. Um, and so that was the role that that I played. So the middle part of the book is really lays out the. Um, what was going on in the country in the context for um, the pandemic spending? You see the fraud crisis, the the, the pandemic. It wasn't just a, a global uh, pandemic that precipitated, in my judgment, a public trust crisis, which then led to the largest public fraud scandal in U.S. history. So I lay out sort of how that evolved and what the IGs were doing, uh, both within their individual offices. Um, and the PRAC as a whole, and lay out what law enforcement was doing to 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 deal with this emerging fraud crisis. Um, so I, I I go through that in the second part of the book, and and one of the uh, uh, one of my earlier reviewers um, commented to me, and it, it was the first time I really thought of it like this. Paul, he'd said, you know what, I we did lose a lot of money, historic amounts of money to taxpayer dollars to fraud, but. I shudder to think what would happen if the IGs weren't there, weren't on watch, because agencies were only making changes because their IGs were barking and sounding the alarm. And then the third part of the book, I think, you know, there are lessons learned and I had a unique role. So it's like, you know, here are the lessons learned for 
from from my perspective, here's what um, Congress and the White House and the administration needs to fix before the next crisis. We're very resilient people, but we have a tendency to forget. And once a crisis is over, we have a tendency to forget the, what we learned from that crisis, and we like to just move on. And, and I think uh, we can't afford to forget our pandemic story, our national pandemic story. Um, there were too many lives lost and too many tax dollars lost. Yeah, and what I love about this book, and you know, I've read similar books and topics for things in the in the past, but just how you, I mean, to, you know, to some degree, clarify a, a lot of what was happening that you just do not see when you're in the middle of it, right? When you're living day to day, you don't realize this confluence of crazy things that are happening and kind of, you know, almost like leading you down the wrong path or a mistaken way or mistaken reasons that you think things are happening. Um, I don't know. I, you just did a really good job of, of kind of putting all that together. So I commend you for that. I don't know. I mean, how'd you even do that? How do you get that research? No, I appreciate that. You know, I was, I was living it right. And you were living it and it really did, you know, I'm, I guess I'm a, a, a an amateur uh, historian in a sense, because I, I, you know, this felt historic at the moment from the very beginning. And, you know, as one of my leadership practices that I've had for a number of years is I keep a day book or journal or what or diary, whatever you want to call it, um, to sort of reflect on what's going on. And it's only with the benefit of hindsight that you're like, I can't believe all of that was happening at the same time. I mean, one of the things that really struck me when I went back, um, and I don't think people realize is, you know, we had a crisis, the pandemic hit, and I think most people are like, we need to band together as one American people. And this crisis hit. Within a matter of days, we had people, we had armed protesters taking over a state house, in, the state house in Michigan, um, protesting, you know, uh, the, the COVID response from their governor. Ta- armed protesters taking over a state house. And you saw, you know, the book kind of ends with, you know, quite frankly, the, the, uh, the, the, the protest and insurrection on, at the U.S. Capitol um, a, a year or so later. Um, so that was the sort of the backstory that we were sort of at each other's throats from the beginning. And it's just important to sort of document all that sort of like what's the national news story? What was the context of all the things that were going on? Because politicians and policymakers, Paul, you know this, right? There and IGs, everybody, we're all human beings. We're all living through the same crisis uh, together. We're seeing the same news. We're focused on the same issues. And so I thought it was important to really tie and weave together all those different elements. Right. And, you know, I mean, the news and everybody else just going to be very focused on these very public things happening, crazy things happening while in the background, you know, billions and hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions, whatever, are going out the door. And some of it, so much of it is going to people that really shouldn't be getting it. Right. So, I mean, how much news did the fraud and all these things that were happening get compared to all the other crazy political stuff? Yeah, we've got, uh, you know, and and one of the things that I tried to convey in the, the earlier chapters of the book, I don't know, uh, you, you mentioned the PTSD, uh, and I have gotten that comment from from several people. It's dizzying and disorienting when you go back and you look at the how the news was evolving on a not on a day to day basis. In January and February, the news was evolving on an hourly basis regarding the pandemic. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was a, a absolutely a crazy time, and right now you hear this, you know, they, in the law they call it a parade of horribles. Like there's a news story after news story about COVID fraud, um, and they're important. I think it's important for the American people to see all the fraud, 
um, that's happening out there, and I think we need to publicize it. But you get numb over time, I, I think. Um, even I do, right? You get numb. So you're seeing right. all these stories like, oh, this this you know million dollar fraud case and that, and we were actually getting almost like you build up tolerance. Um, at one point, I, I remarked to the the guy on my team who handled uh, criminal investigations. I'm like, doesn't it seem like all the fraud cases now are hitting the twenty dollars twenty million dollar mark? And you sort of get you're like, wait a minute, like the last five Department of Justice press releases that went out are on twenty million dollar fraud cases. That's extraordinary. Um, so in the book, what I try to do is sort of outline how the fraud crisis evolved and really. It started in the very beginning. I tell the story of a of a 50 year old mother from Modesto, California, who conspired with her son, who was uh, convicted of murder and on death row in San Quentin, and uh, the ink wasn't even dry on the CARES Act, which provided, of course, for the stimulus checks you might remember from IRS, right? The yeah. ink wasn't even dry when the mother and son figured out how they could scam the IRS to get stimulus checks. They actually used personal information from inmates to submit claims. There was, um, but there are other examples through there, various frauds that just began immediately. So I tried to capture, like, okay, well, it's not just individual cases, but here's, here's in terms of the the overall fraud environment. Here's um, what we saw and what we will continue to see, and what we need to do as a government to combat it. And that's really part three of the book. Those are the lessons learned. Right. Well, something I took away and, you know, try not to be cynical here, but I mean, oh my God. So, you know, you put this massive amount of money out and just like everybody goes bananas. Like I want a piece of that. I'm going to do something shady to get this money. I mean, there's like the human nature aspect is so illuminating and scary. Right. I mean, it's, but in a way it kind of, you know, this is fraud, yeah, this was a fraud uh, potential on steroids. You know, now we're if you go back to sort of your regular day to day, you're not going to see this volume. But the motivations and the types of folks that do it, I mean, maybe do you better understand them now? Or I don't know. What did this teach you about just the people that are willing to do this? Wow, that's a great question, Paul. You know, I, I, I what I say is that, um, you know, from a uh, counter fraud, national counter fraud strategy perspective. That I think what we learned is the, uh, uh, appealing to the better angels of mankind to not commit fraud in a crisis is not an effective fraud <laughs> strategy. Right. People are going to panic, right? And um, attestation or, or self attestation, self certification, that's not an effective fraud control. I, 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 in an early interview that I did uh, with the media, um, in the early months of the pandemic, they asked, like, what are you most surprised about? And honestly, I, I gave them, I said two things. One is the IGs that were p- members of the PRAC were just doing extraordinary work in addition to their day jobs, right? These are IGs that have day jobs overseeing their own agencies, and then they were just slammed with these additional pandemic responsibilities. But in addition to that, I said, you know, it's just stunning to me. Um, the level of fraud that you're seeing and for people that normally wouldn't commit crime. So I outlined sort of like there's, there was really three offender types that I, I see you had the novice offenders that it was just too good to be true, right? It was just too good to pass up. So they're like, I've never been in trouble before. I would have never dreamed of committing fraud. 
but everybody else is doing this. I'm seeing it on social media. I, I got to get my piece too. If I'm not, I'm a sucker. You saw that. We saw that. College students, members, of, upstanding members of the community, pastors, you name the profession or the background. These people that were novices that were committing fraud for the first time. Then we had experienced fraudsters that are those are the folks that have done, you know, they've have they have a little bit of a criminal history there. You know, that's not their first time, first time on the around the block. But they saw this large attack surface with the pandemic spending. And they're like, look, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to hit it because that's where the money is. And then the pandemic attracted professional criminals from around the world. These professional gangs that filed hundreds and hundreds of claims. Um, and we got hit super hard. So those are the sort of offender types that uh, that we saw. I say the biggest, one of the the biggest uh, thorniest, messiest problems coming out of the pandemic that the, we need to be thinking about is the problem of low grade, what I call low grade fraud. That is the relatively small dollar loss cases that don't aren't accompanied by um, aggravating factors like somebody going out and buying a Lamborghini uh, with the with the money. Um, there's not enough cops or not enough prosecutors to prosecute all of the low-grade fraud cases, so we really need to rethink how we deal, how we deter fraud on the front on the front end, um, so those novice actors uh, realize that hey, I better not even think about it. And then we need to figure out um, aftercare, what I call aftercare in the book. We need to figure out ways to um, pursue and have al- alternative remedies so that people that lose their head and do something totally out of character. Um, it's not going to ruin their life, but the government's going to be made whole and get their money back. So I talk about sort of those alternative remedies and voluntary uh, repayment programs and the like that are that are used in some agencies today. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I like that. I uh, that comment about the novice fraudsters, because I could even see a lot of people just maybe, maybe not even realize I'm doing anything wrong. It's like, oh, there's an application for free money. I'm just going to apply. I mean, oh, I, you know, they may not even realize they're not they're not eligible or don't think too hard about that you know so the, yeah the number of those people must have been huge of course in addition to the true criminals so yeah it's, it's just like, i and yeah. you know yeah i talk about that you know the um you know i i'm a citizen like everybody else and so um people in my community were saying uh you know the small business owners are like they're getting called from financial advisors and and uh and the like saying you'd be a fool not to apply this money. Yeah. Everybody else is doing it. So I, when I, I'm careful in the book, I talk about fraud and I talk about waste. And and when I'm talking about waste, that's one of the things, you know, uh, waste is a much more difficult thing to uh, quantify and to define. But yeah, you know, there are a lot of people that got money um, that didn't need it, pandemic relief. And, and I'm not calling anybody out. So if there's any football fans out there, I apologize in advance. But, you know, I, I write about it in the book because it was talked about publicly, but, you know, right after the CARES Act was signed, you know, former NFL Hall of, uh, future Hall of Famer Tom Brady, his he got a $960,000 PPP loan for his business. Meanwhile, you know, tennis legend Serena Williams said, you know what, I, I, I don't need the money. So I'm not going to apply. She was interviewed uh, in an article for Fast Co- Company magazine. She's like, look, I, I we don't need the money. There's other companies that needed way more than us. So she actually took her company and repurposed. It was a clothing company. And she's like, why don't we use the fabric to make face masks? You remember the time? Like we, there were shortages. You couldn't buy face masks on Amazon. Um, 
So I, th- I thought that was actually a great little anecdote from the pandemic, but um, you did see that over and over, small businesses that didn't necessarily need the money grabbing it. Yeah, and I mean, again, again, this is one of my takeaways, just my opinion, but I, again, I really feel like that's why we've got to figure out some controls, whether it's technology, whatever, and I'll ask you about this in a second, but, you know, to combat human nature, because, you know, by nature, we're just going to be like, okay, here's a free thing. Why not take advantage? I mean, it's just it's just a simple thing. I mean, not everybody's a saint or the most ethical, you know, perfect person. Nobody is. So what can we do with yep. technology or something to either, you know, to stop it going out, claw it back if it does? I don't know. Put a blockchain on that sucker so you can only spend tokens instead of dollars? I don't know. Did you? What do you feel about some technology things that could have maybe helped us out or help us out in the future? Yeah, yeah I think, you know, things are evolving so rapidly, um, right, with technology. And just even since I um, have retired in December, you know, chat GPT is really revolutionizing a lot of activities that we do. So, you know, I can't predict, you know, what the next year or two is going to hold, but I, I, I do, and I talk about this in the book, technology and data are absolutely critical. Um, not only on the deterring and um, detecting fraud on the um, uh, on the on the front end or de- I say deterring or denying fraud on the front end right you should government data sets should be looking at other government data sets at the very least do not pay right very least look at do not pay out of treasury to say ineligible payee and deny that uh, that uh, that claim um, and then we need to we need to build use technology and data to detect and um, disrupt fraud schemes much quicker on the back end. I think that's where you're going to see tremendous growth from organizations like the Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence and the future work that they do is we have to figure out, okay, well, sometimes money is going to go out the door, but how do you minimize your losses? And that's where data and technology is absolutely going to come in. And then again, it's, it's not just that, though, because there's policy reasons like these voluntary self-disclosure programs that I mentioned or uh, Civil Frost Claims Act remedies where you're like, look, people are going to lose their head. Um, they may not be fraudsters in the sense that they cynically and intentionally from uh, at the outset decided to defraud a program but they made misrepresentations in, either, in how they use the funds or their identity or whatever. Um, and we have to figure out a way to, to, to affect and disrupt that fraud much, much quicker. And uh, just had a couple more questions for you. So one of them was, I think earlier in the book, you, uh, you mentioned some things like, because this story here is not just about, okay, fraud, right? I mean, all this money went out. Was it effective? You know, did it do what it was meant to do? Did it, I mean, did it keep the economy going? People, you know, paying their rents and things like that. Sounds like for the most part, your answer was in some cases it did. In some cases it didn't. Do we have a kind of clear picture on whether the actual government strategy of putting this money out in this way was effective? That's a great question. And I, and I deal with it in a, a chapter of the book, um, you know, m- measuring outcomes, it's super challenging. You can measure outputs, right? That's relatively straightforward. How much money did you put out for this program? But outcomes is, is such a challenging nut to crack. So we're not there yet. You know, there's data. I tell you though, there's, and there was a, there's, I lay out all sorts of data points on the, uh, how the cost, the financial and other costs of the pandemic to the, to our society. 
uh, in one of the chapters. Um, there is data to show that in the short term, American Rescue Plan funding um, actually increased uh, quality of life for folks. There's there's a measure that's used to measure the the uh, available funds or cash that one has to pay for rent, food, and the like. And in the short term, that actually the American people you saw you saw gains on that statistic. On the other side, you know, there's at least one study from uh, you know Stanford economists that I cite in the book that the stimulus checks that we got um, from IRS um, actually may have benefited you in the short term and giving you additional disposable cash, but it didn't have the effect or, or stimulate the economy as, as we hoped for. On the stimulus checks, I, I mentioned this in the book in terms of, I, I frame it in terms of government waste is like, to be honest, I wasn't hurt financially. I'm, I'm a public servant. I'm not a wealthy person, but I wasn't hit financially by the pandemic. So I really didn't need more money from the government there's no way to pay it back, but I didn't really need, I know there are millions of Americans that did need those checks, but I didn't. And I think we need to do a better job of quickly distributing targeted emergency aid, making sure the money just gets into the right hands. And I think, um, I think we learned over time to do a better job on targeting that aid, but in the beginning it was a pretty broad brush. Yeah. And I mean, thank goodness we're in the position we are as a country that we can create this money and just put it out there. I mean, a lot of countries didn't have that kind of privilege of being a world leader kind of hegemon sort of thing. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the amount of money that was created and spent and put out there is just mind boggling to me. And I don't know, we, America keeps being able to do it. So uh, unless there's some political destabilization in the future, I guess that's kind of how we'll keep handling things. It's interesting. Well, that's, yeah, well, that's one of the things that I really hope with this book, and I'm not naive, and it's going to take a, a, a lot of moving parts and a lot of voices on this, but um, you're seeing it already. Um, folks, we're already starting to forget our pandemic stories, and we can't afford to as a nation. So hopefully folks will, with this book and, and other folks talking about this, they'll frame the issue to say, we can't just assume that we're always going to have money. We're always going to have a, the uh, printing press to print out more cash. Um, this, you know, if if the fraudsters hit us this hard this time around, what do you think they're going to do next time, right? Yeah. And and one thing, Paul, I, I I think it's critically important to mention. It's not just about the loss to the taxpayers, because the problem with fraud with the pandemic was lar was largely a problem of um, identity fraud. Well, whose identity was being stolen? Well, American citizens, right? So what happens when you're when you go to file a legitimate unemployment insurance claim the next crisis, but you you're denied because there's already a claim in the system from somebody overseas that had used your stolen identity. That's what I'm. That's an additional major concern, right? Is if we don't get our arms around the um, the uh, identity verification or digital identity problem. Um, we're going to be in a bad place, not only financially, but otherwise, but getting services to American people that need it um, during the next crisis. Yeah, and that reminds you know, what, it's interesting. I go to a website sometimes and type in my password or, or create a new password, and, and I get this little message pop up. Oh, this, this, mess, uh, this password has been compromised in pr previous attacks. You might want to use a different one. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. Really? Okay. Well, yeah, and you know what? Um, the... I, I say this before, I guarantee in about five minutes, if uh, you wanted to bet me a coffee, 
I could go online and find all of your personal information, everything about you that um, could be used to monetize your identity um, in about five minutes on the dark web. All of our information's there, and it's shocking how cheap it's sold for. I mean, it's that's that shows you just how prevalent it is that you can buy one's identity for the less less than the cost of a Chipotle burrito. I can buy, um, you know, your name, DOB, SSN, email address, everything. Yeah, that it's just so common. What a world. No, PTSD. No. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> what a world. No. Yep, but, um, indeed. No, but, you know, and again, without, I think reading books like this constantly reminds us of, hey, reality check. Here's what's going on out in the world. Protect yourself. Be cognizant. Try to be part of a solution here. Um, and with that, that's kind of one of my last questions for you. So, you know, what, and you mentioned some of them, but, you know, what were your major recommendations from this? What, what, what does Congress or, or you know, president or whoever or ourselves what do we need to do to be you know better prepared next time something like this happens well you know talk about the 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 covid tests were intertwined it wasn't just about giving money out and distributed aid uh and a, distributing emergency aid in a targeted manner but it's it's also the the uh, public messaging on um public emergencies we did an atrocious job we've got foreign um uh, adversaries that really have an active have active disinformation campaign. So the first thing is we absolutely need to combat public health misinformation and disinformation on social media. We need to do more now on that um, because we are very weak in this area. We also need to overhaul the government's uh, approach to improper payments. The current law doesn't work for emergencies. I outline the reasons why in the book. We need to make anti-fraud activities a national priority. Um, and make sure that basic controls are in place and um, control effectiveness over time increases. And then um, we need to, I think Congress needs to embed in less legislation some of the lessons learned, um, including making the something like the Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence permanent, including encouraging uh, those um, alternative remedies that I spoke about, like voluntary disclosure programs and uh, civil remedies. Um, those are the kinds of things that I think Congress can do and, and encourage uh, agencies to develop those programs by uh, putting them in, in legislation and appropriately funding them. Well, the book is Left Holding the Bag. It's out there, Amazon, all kinds of places. Um, again, I loved it. I thought it was very easy to read, well-written. I mean, I think your new retirement jobs just be writing books because <laughs> you're pretty damn good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paul. I yeah. appreciate it, and uh, it's a pleasure being with you. Okay. Well, with that, we thank you again for being here. And uh, that that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in to uh, Accountability Talks with uh, myself, your host, Paul Marshall, uh, with AGA. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>